Well, I want to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, not 1 John, but the Gospel of John and chapter 12. As it's Palm Sunday, we want to uh, focus in on a, a Palm Sunday passage. This is one of those weeks that uh, I call a perfect game, uh, where I, I came to my Bible reading on Monday morning knowing that I wanted to preach on Palm Sunday about Palm Sunday. And don't you know, on Monday morning, the, the reading for the Robert Murray McShane Bible reading plan was John chapter 12 about Jesus's triumphal entry. And so that's why we find ourselves in this text this morning, uh, John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. Uh, I'll read that and then we'll pray briefly and, and dive right in. Here's what John writes. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Lord, we pray that uh, you give us insight once again. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week I, um, I found myself drawn to a, a very famous quote by one of my favorite old dead guys, as they're affectionately known, uh, people who I refer to as my mentors in print who lived some time ago but teach me through their writing. And uh, the man that I want to quote uh, this morning is a man named J.C. Ryle, one of my greatest heroes in the Christian faith, was once called the frank and manly Mr. Ryle. If you know anything about me, you know I've been aspiring to frankness and manliness my entire life, and one day, one day I will arrive. But J.C. Ryle, in one of his commentaries on the Gospels, writes this, quote, the best of men, humans, are only men at their very best. Patriarchs, prophets, and apostles, martyrs, fathers, reformers, Puritans, all are sinners who need a savior, holy, useful, honorable in their place, but sinners after all. The best of men are only men at their very best. You may not uh, have me pinned as someone who pays much attention to the British royal family, and you would be absolutely right. Um, but it doesn't take much interest in things of that nature to know that we have reason to add royalty to the list of patriarchs, prophets, apostles, Puritans, reformers, etc., who at their very best are merely human. After all, we've seen members of the royal family depart. We've seen accusations of uh, negligence regarding mental health and racism. The royal family, for all intents and purposes, seems to be in disarray. If you're from the UK, I'm sorry to talk about your kings and queens in that way. But from my limited understanding as an American, it seems that the royal family is in utter disarray. 
And as if as Americans, our estimation of royalty couldn't be lower, this seems just to confirm all the thoughts that we have. This is why we don't want kings and queens, right? We understand uh, that rulers and authorities are inherently sinful, so we would rather not have sinful fallen humans rule over us as our kings and queens. Thank you very much. Uh, but what I want to point out to you here in the passage in front of us is that there is a king about whom we cannot say uh, that he is merely human. There is a king that we cannot say has any fault. There is a king that we cannot say rules over a small dominion of authority, but rather a king who rules over the entire world. And it's as Jesus enters into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry on that first Palm Sunday that we have declared to us that there is a king who rules over death for the whole world. That's the message that I want you to understand here this morning is that Jesus is the king who rules even over death and he rules over death for the whole world. No matter who you are this morning or no matter what you've done, it doesn't matter if you're uh, an American or if you, you moved here from another country, it doesn't matter if you're white, it doesn't matter if you're black, it doesn't matter if you're Asian, it doesn't matter if you're Arab, it doesn't matter who you are, the king who is on offer in this passage is a king for you. Is a king for you because I can tell you, as one of you, that the greatest problem you have is the problem of death. Ten out of ten people die. But there's a king who has overcome death. And in this passage, he is proclaimed to you. Now, I want us to feel, I want us to really sort of understand and get our hearts and our minds into the context of this passage. Because what we have here in John chapter 12 is fascinating. It's fascinating in this respect. There are very few passages in the Gospels that are recorded in all four of the Gospels. If you're not yet a Christian, you're not familiar with the Bible, we, we call the books Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the Gospels. And each of them tells the true story about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus from a slightly different perspective, as you would expect from different writers. They're all telling the same story, but with different emphases and angles and perspectives. Um, I, I did have a friend who uh, shared at one point that when she was first reading the four Gospels, she couldn't understand why Jesus kept dying and rising from the dead over and over and over again. She thought they were chronological, and that's why it, it bears stating these are all uh, the same story told from different perspectives. And the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday is one of very few um, things that happen in the life and teaching of Jesus that all four, all four of the writers pick up on. Now, the reason that that's important is when you read all four accounts side by side, um, the distinctive perspective of the writer will become apparent. And for John, and only John, he ties the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem to Jesus's power, authority, sovereignty over death. Jesus is the king who rules over death. I mean, you have it right in the passage when we're told that the reason, verse 18, why the crowd went to meet him on that Palm Sunday was that they heard that he had done this sign. What sign? He called Lazarus out of the tomb. 
So John's very intentional to tie these two events together. There was a man named Lazarus. He died. Jesus brought him back to life. People go and want to meet Jesus. But let's just do a little bit of groundwork here. In verse 12, we read the next day, right? That's how it begins. The next day, the large crowd that had gone to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. The next day. That begs the question, doesn't it? What happened the previous day? Why does John tell us the next day? So I want you to turn back to chapter 12, verse 1. This is the next, or I'm sorry, the previous day. Chapter 12, verse 1. Listen to this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. And what happens subsequently is that Mary anoints Jesus with ointment or perfume, and Judas is, is kind of put off by that. Let's not miss the fact that here is Jesus in the hometown of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. They're all siblings. And he's at a dinner party. And one of the guests at the dinner party is this man called Lazarus who was dead. Like that's, you got to get the weight of that in your heart to understand what's happening here. You know, they, they have a dinner party on behalf of this man who is dead and, and raised again. In actual fact, when they had the dinner party, they should have sent out invitations that said, uh, you'll have to excuse Lazarus. He's died. He can't come. But here he is reclining at table. Well, that takes us back even farther. So let's move back into chapter 11 and understand what, what's going on with this man, Lazarus. Well, Lazarus is a friend of Jesus. He and his sisters, Mary and Martha, all very close to Jesus. And at the beginning of chapter 11, Jesus gets word. If you've never read this chapter, I urge you to read this. John chapter 11, it's, it's remarkable. But Jesus hears at the beginning of the chapter that his friend Lazarus has taken ill. He's sick. And we're not talking about sniffles. We're talking this is serious. And the reason Jesus is told is that presumably Jesus can do something about it. But Jesus, fully God, fully human, filled with compassion beyond your wildest imagination, does not turn on the sirens and lights. In fact, he doesn't go at all. He waits. And he lets Lazarus die. Now, there are these comments that are made by Jesus all throughout the chapter, which show us exactly why he does what he does. So, for instance, in verse 4, uh, when Jesus heard about the illness, and he's already decided to wait, he says, this illness does not lead to death, ultimately. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Lazarus dies for the glory of Jesus. It's immediately a, a lesson that the glory of Jesus is more important even than our lives, right? Lazarus dies for the glory of Jesus. You read on. Verse 15. Um, Jesus says to them, Lazarus has died. So now he has died. And for your sake, you disciples, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe but let us go to him. Lazarus dies for the glory of Jesus. Lazarus dies for the faith of the disciples. 
We press on, verses 41 and 42. Jesus is there at the tomb. They take away the stone. Jesus is about to do the work. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. He's praying. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Lazarus dies for the glory of Jesus, for the faith of the disciples, and for the faith of all who are there. When I preach on John 11, I always entitle it, Lazarus died for you. Because the purpose of Lazarus' death is to show us who Jesus is. Who can raise someone from the dead? That's one of the signs that John tells us at the end of his gospel. is meant to lead us to faith in Jesus. Now you would think, on the strength of something like that, uh, that everyone in the city would be overcome with joy and worship. But that's not quite the case. See, right after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead... Uh, some of the people are in awe uh, of, of all that Jesus has done, and they believe in him, verse 45. But, verse 46, some go and tattle. They tell the Pharisees, who can't handle anyone, even the God-man, coming onto their turf and raising people from the dead. I mean, if he can raise people from the dead, what are they going to think about us? So Jesus gets put, if you will, on Israel's most wanted list at the end of uh, chapter 11, verses 55 and on. There's all kinds of excitement about whether Jesus will show up at the Feast of Passover. Is he going to show up? Is the guy who can raise the dead going to show up? And the Pharisees say at the end of chapter 11, anyone who sees him better report him because we're going to arrest him. He's on the most wanted list. There's an APB out for him. Is he going to show up in Jerusalem? And it's on the strength of all of that in chapter 12, verse 1. is beautiful. John writes, um, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. They're looking for you. They're going to arrest you. Therefore, Jesus went right to where they're at. And here in verse 12, finally in our passage, Jesus is entering into, on the next day after this dinner party with a dead man, Jesus is entering into the city of Jerusalem. There are a lot of people there. John tells us there's a large crowd. Who knows how many people uh, constitute a large crowd? All I know is that Josephus, one of the Jewish historians, tells us that uh, around 67 AD, um, the large crowd that was in Jerusalem for the Passover was like 2.7 million. So if it's anywhere near that, if it's half that, this is a large crowd. Do you remember crowds? I, mean, I was thinking about that when I was reading this. Do you remember crowds? That's something I don't mind uh, ever having to go to again. Like, I hope that one of the effects of the pandemic is crowds are out, smaller gatherings are in. Crowds make me nervous. The last crowd I was in that was anywhere near this was when 1.3 million people went into the city of Cleveland after the Cavs won the NBA championship. You couldn't get to the city. The freeways were locked up. It was unbreathable. Everybody smelled, but it was great. 1.3 million people. The headlines in some of the sporting news were, was um, 1.3 million descend on downtown Cleveland and the city cannot handle it. Jerusalem here is bearing the impact of this large crowd of pilgrims coming to worship the Passover where God saved them from Egyptian rule. And they've, they've heard They've heard, John tells us, about this man who raised someone from the dead. And they know he's coming into the city. Think about the excitement and the anticipation. It's at a fever pitch. It's boiling over. 
because at this point in time, Israel is under Roman occupation. They're feeling the pinch of oppressive government. There are a lot of different ways of thinking of how to deal with the government. Some said submit, some said fight, some kind of had a middle ground approach. But in any case, the thinking goes like this. If he can bring people back from the dead, what do you think he's going to do to Rome? Here's the king. Let's go. It's time to get it going, guys. So as he's entering into the city, they all come waving palm trees. Wouldn't you love to see palm branches right now? They find branches of palm trees. They begin to wave them. Now, palm branches were normally associated with other Jewish feasts, not Passover. That troubles some Bible scholars. But by this time, the palm tree was as Jewish as the bald eagle is American. I mean, this is a sign of Israeli Jewish nationalism. This is our king. Get the palm branches. Let's go. And as Jesus is making his way into the city, not only do they have the palm branches, but they begin to cry out and praise him in the language of their own scriptures. We read at the beginning of our, our service from Psalm 118, verse 25, and the crowd takes those words on their lips. Hosanna means, Lord, save us. Save us now. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Feel this tension and excitement. Here's Israel's king. Here's Israel's signs of nationalism. Here's Israel's shot to be freed from Roman rule. And what is Jesus going to do? Because what Jesus does next is going to make all the difference in human history, isn't it? Well, Jesus, Jesus does something so remarkable, so staggering, so, dare I say, offensive, but yet beautifully comforting. He gets on a donkey. Now, I want to tell you, I was in my office um, this morning before service, and I'm sort of straightening up. I'm going to move back into my office and begin working from my office. And I have um, one of the, my favorite things that I own is my dad's old Akron Fire Department Battalion Captain helmet. Keep it right next to my desk. And there are certain things that the symbol of that helmet represents for me. It represents the kind of man my dad was. It represents courage and boldness and leadership and decisiveness and compassion. All of those things come to my mind as soon as I look. As you just get a glance, those things start firing. There is a, a truth in that symbolism. It, it shows me who my dad was. My dad was a captain. He, putting on the helmet didn't, didn't make him the captain, but I think it showed the people around him what kind of captain he was, because it would have symbolized those same things for them. And here, as Jesus gets on the donkey, he's not, he's not being made king by getting on the donkey. He's not even necessarily proclaiming himself to be the king, per se, by getting on the donkey. Now, what Jesus is doing here is he's telling the people of Israel and he's telling the world, not that he's king, but what kind of king he is. What kind of king is Jesus? 
Now, this is a culture that is steeped in the scriptures. They understand, they know, they see a donkey and they think to themselves, where do I know of, of that symbol from? And see, John picks up on it immediately. Or maybe not immediately, he tells us in a couple of verses he didn't understand until after Jesus was raised from the dead. But as he thinks back on it, at least, he recognizes that what's happening here is, is fulfillment of Scripture in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Look at this, verse 15, where John quotes the, the uh, prophet who says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. It's a, a, a description of Israel or Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's cult. Now, when the Old Testament shows up in your New Testament, it comes with friends. And what I mean by that is it brings all of the verses around it with it. So that when Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem, it's not just one verse taken out of context applied to Jesus. It's the whole of what Zechariah is saying in chapter 9. And as Zechariah speaks of the judgment that is to come on Israel's enemies, it sounds very similar to the context of the triumphal entry. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Then the Lord says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. Jesus doesn't come on a war horse to declare war on Rome. He comes on a donkey. The battle bow shall be cut off, the prophet continues, and he shall speak peace to the nations. Plural, nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. See, the people in Zechariah's time are going, God, how are you going to deal with our enemies? And God's answer is, I'm going to make your enemies your friends. God, how are you going to defeat those who oppose us? I'm going to defeat those who oppose us by bringing them into my kingdom. Because your king not only rules over Israel, he rules over the nations. This is a subtle, gracious, striking rebuke from the Lord of the universe to the people of Israel to say, Israel, stop the tunnel vision. It's not just about you. It's about the world. I'm not just the king of Israel. I wield the power over death for the world. And what follows is so wonderful because it's exactly what you would expect when something so striking happens. There's a variety of response. See, the, the emphasis of the passage, the climax of the passage is Jesus getting on the donkey and riding in and, and effect saying, I'm the king of the world. The first response to this act is confusion. Who's confused? I love this. His disciples. 
The people who should get it, if nobody else does, are the people who are confused. Look at verse 17, 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Now this is an aside, this is free. This has really nothing to do with the emphasis of the passage, but because it's Palm Sunday, let me just say, it never fails, guys. Christmas, Easter, Christmas, Easter. You can set your watch to it. Almost every year, you're gonna hear challenges against the reliability, the historical reliability of the Christian Bible in its witness to the incarnation at Christmas, the death, and the, certainly the resurrection of Jesus at Easter. And this is not an open and shut apologetic, but don't you think, I mean, honestly, don't you think if the disciples are getting together and they said, okay, guys, huddle up. Uh, we got something to sell. We're going to convince the world that Jesus rose from the dead. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to make ourselves look as bad as we possibly can all throughout our preaching so that people believe what we have to say. No, this has the ring of historical re reality to it, doesn't it? We didn't even understand what this was about until after he was raised from the dead. And then what he said to the Pharisees in chapter 5, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it's they that testify about me. That's when it goes off in our minds is when he helps us to understand. But the disciples, for their part, they're confused. What are you, what are you doing with the donkey? Well, the crowd, they just continue to witness. This is beautiful. See, there are two, two crowds. There's a crowd within a crowd. There's the large crowd who's there because they hear the testimony of the crowd within the crowd that, hey, we were there at Bethany when he raised Lazarus from the dead. You go into any coffee shop in Jerusalem while this is happening, and people are talking about it. Hey, did you see that guy with the palm branches? Do you hear what people were saying to him? Yeah, well, you know why they said that, because... He was in Bethany raising people from the dead, man. This dude's insane. You gotta, you gotta get with this guy. There's a fever pitch. And then there's anger. There's anger. And the anger is what highlights the entire thrust of what John's trying to tell us. Look at the anger in verse 19. We got the disciples are confused. We got the crowd is witnessing and the Pharisees are just mad. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is almost comical. You know, I, I've always kind of been on record that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a nerd and I grew up reading comic books and watching superhero stuff. This reminds me of that moment, you know, when the Joker's henchmen can't get Batman and they come back and they say, boss, he got away again. And then they start fighting over, you know, who's the numbskull that let him go. They can't get anything right. The more they try to stop Jesus, the more people go after him. And here the Pharisees huddled up angry like, you numbskull, what, like, why can't you get this right? But their testimony is so important for John. The world, the world has gone after him. So this passage begins with a symbol of Israelite nationalism and ends with a proclamation of a king for the whole world. And the Pharisees, speaking like children, upset about not being able to do something, Dad, the world's doing that. Why can't I do that? They mean simply that, look, all of Jerusalem's gone. But for John, 
John is a master sort of, of irony and subtlety and ambiguity, and he takes their words and uses them against them. Because for John, it doesn't just mean Jerusalem. It means like, for God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now that world does not mean every single person individually or else everybody would go to heaven. What it does mean is every kind of person indiscriminately. Let me say that again. Not every person individually, every kind of person indiscriminately. And the reason we know that is that John, for his part, actually in the very next verse, the very next thing that happens is he takes a group of people that would otherwise be thought to have been outsiders and he lifts them up as exemplars of being insiders. Um, Jesus, there are some Greeks here. There are some Greeks here to see you. And from that point on, Jesus starts talking about the cross. I'm going to the cross. My mission for the world is complete. I'm going to the cross. The scope of my kingdom has been understood. I'm going to the cross. The whole world is going after him. And that's why I feel like I can stand here before you this morning and say, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter. He is your king. Because God so loved the world that he dealt with the world's greatest need, and that is death. And I want to show you how and why. Jesus not only defeats the enemies of God's people by making them his friends, but he defeats death. Listen, he defeats death by dying. The next time Jesus is presented king, the Gospel of John, isn't by a crowd that is heralding his entrance into the city, it's by a cowardly king named Pilate. And in chapter 19, verse 12, we read this. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friends. So now they're leveraging the Roman rule. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Aramaic Gabbatha. And now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. <laughs> Save us, crucify him. Save us, crucify him. You know, the Bible actually makes sense when you realize that those cries aren't, aren't antithetical. Save us. Crucify him. 
because Jesus lays down his life for your sin and for mine so that in paying for your sin and coming back through death, resurrection life, Easter Sunday, if you will look at him and see him living, dying, and rising in your place, well, Jesus would say to you what he says to Lazarus, his sister, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me shall never die. Even if he dies, he shall live. Because Jesus is the king for all people who deals with our greatest problem, that is death. He rules over death for the whole world. Let me say one final thing in closing. Not to those of us who uh, need to trust in Jesus for the first time, but for those of us who need a pattern of life that is shaped by and fashioned by the gospel. In other words, how do I live a gospel-shaped life as I follow Jesus? Well, I think it's very simple, and it shouldn't be even controversial or offensive, but if Jesus is the king for the world indiscriminately, then that means as followers of Jesus, we should be the most indiscriminate people on earth. If Jesus died for every tribe, tongue, and nation, we should uphold and esteem the value of every tribe, tongue, and nation. If humanity is at equal footing before the reality of death, that means that none of us are better than any other. There is no cultural superiority in Christ. Now, of course, I am speaking about this in a very sort of macro kind of way. It's, it should be painfully obvious that things like racism, classism, sexism are all out, all out instantly. But there are micro-level ways which you and I go wrong on this. Some of them are sort of embedded in our culture. And when I mean our culture, I mean Lawrence County, Pennsylvania culture. Now, I might step on your toes, but understand I love you and I count myself as one of you. But we sort of, we have a knack, don't we, of, of making people feel other. And how do we do that? We, we, well, uh, we don't really discriminate, at least not blatantly, on, on things like um, gender, race. What we do discriminate on is birthright. Where were you born? Excuse me, were you born here? Oh, you weren't? Well, you're a, a transplant, you see. I mean, I've talked to people who've been here for decades, decades, who feel still in the greater community like second-class citizens because they're transplants. Loved ones, if we're going to follow Jesus, we cannot contribute to that kind of thinking. We have to combat it. Welcoming those who are outsiders and heralding them, even as John does, as the picture of what it means to be an insider. We follow the king who rules over death for the whole world. Let there be faith. And for our parts, no partiality as we follow this king. Hosanna, save us now. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus, 
our humble and gentle king who came not merely to fulfill the desires of Israel, but to be the king of the whole world. The king who brings in to uh, fulfillment all of the prophecies of your word of, of a king who subdues Israel's enemies by ruling over them, a kingdom that expands from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. To the Jew first, but also to the Gentile to the Israelite and to the Greek. Lord, I pray for the person here who's thought at some point in their life, well, that Christianity thing is not for me. Lord, I pray that you would draw them. Help them to see that you and only you are the one who has solved death. Because you've solved sin. And help us, Lord, as we follow you to be as indiscriminate as Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jude writes, uh, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence with great joy, be honor and glory and majesty and dominion for now, from now and forevermore. Amen. May you go in his grace.